Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. And those of you listening online, good morning to you. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to the gospel according to Mark. The gospel according to Mark, chapter 15, we'll take verses 42 through 47. Would you stand please for the reading of God's word? Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he bought fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in linen. And he laid him in a tomb, which had been hewn out of rock, and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joses, observed where he was laid. Please be seated. Love never budged. That's the title of this morning's message. After Jesus had breathed his last, while still on the cross, his body at least, there remained the work of removing his body to the grave. After all, what, what would happen to someone who was crucified and died on the cross? What, what happened to their bodies? Rome would just take them and discard them. If the family asked, they might say yes and grant it to them. In this case, the Sanhedrin may have asked for the body or saw to it that it was dishonorably treated. And so here, amongst the grieving, confused, and shattered hearts of the disciples, their faith was battered. Uh, it, was, it was severely injured. And a man steps forward. We know him as Joseph of Arimathea, and he asked for the body while it still hung on the cross, because even though their faith had been greatly wounded and their hearts were broken, their love never budged. It, it never flinched. The love was still there. In fact, I believe in Joseph's case, at least, and perhaps Nicodemus, the faith, uh, the love intensified for Jesus, and hopefully we'll see some of that in this morning's consideration. We look now at verse 42. Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. We stop there mid-sentence. There is so much going on here culturally and traditionally. These activities are swirling around the Passover while, again, Christ is still on the cross. Mark's in, uh, Mark mentions uh, this, verse 42, uh, for his Roman audience who were unacquainted with the Jewish customs. It is potentially confusing to get into it from the pulpit. It's a little easier if you're writing it, but just to speak it. For example, he says here, now when evening had come. Well, the Jews, they, they counted early evening and late evening. Uh, early evening began at 3 p.m. and lasted till 6. And then he, so you have all of these twists and turns going on here. 
that uh, we might lose sight of. So suffice it to say that Christ, uh, he who is the Passover, he is he died at 3 p.m. His body is likely removed before 6 p.m. before sundown, and that's what is is uh, uh, moving Joseph when he steps forward to get the body of Christ down before others can get to him. Now, it's also important to understand that while he was on the cross, uh, the daily sacrifices were offered. And the Jews would have their morning sacrifice, uh, where they would sacrifice the animal, then offer it to the Lord, and then they would have the evening sacrifice and offer that to the Lord. Well, here on this day, being a, a, a high day, there would also be the Passover sacrifices. Well, Christ, of course, he fills uh, the, he is the fulfillment of all of these sacrifices. He is the daily sacrifice, and he is the Passover for us. It gives a little bit more uh, thrust to when Jesus says, take up your cross daily and follow me, being a daily sacrifice uh, for Christ. Well, uh, here, sunset, remember, is going to mark the change of days. Uh, so for the Jew, it is now Thursday. At sunset, that will start their Friday, still our Thursday. See, this is where it gets a little confusing. I, I, I believe in a Thursday crucifixion. Some even go so far back as a Wednesday, but I don't think you can make that work. The Friday is out if you consider that Jesus said that as uh, Jonah was in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. Well, to get that three day and three night, uh, you can only do it on a Thursday crucifixion uh, in spite of what uh, tradition may, may, may declare. Many great Bible commentators still hold to a Friday crucifixion because it's not that important of a matter. I'm making it more important by, by staying on it, perhaps. But uh, it's good to know these things. I think it uh, makes us better at uh, approaching the Scripture, looking for the truth and for what it's really saying. Uh, anyway, um, they had to hurry to get the body of Christ off the cross, wanting to fulfill the requirement in Deuteronomy. A person that was hung on a cross was accursed, and they were not to remain there uh, overnight, and so they are certainly mindful of this also. John writes in the 19th chapter, he says, Because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. Uh, continuing, John does, The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So when the Jews talked about Sabbath, it's not only a Saturday. The Saturdays were a Sabbath. But their high days, their holy days, if it fell on a Tuesday or a Monday or any other day, it, that day was a Sabbath too. And because this is the Passover, beginning at Thursday sundown starts that high day, the Passover. Now you have uh, you know, over a million people coming into Jerusalem offering up sacrifices. They can't wait till the last minute to start slaughtering the sacrificial lambs. This has been going on while Christ is on the cross in preparation. And so again, a lot of activity taking place. Uh, this uh, Christ on the cross at the time of the sacrifices of the animals matches what was going on in, when the Jews were bringing, being brought out of Egypt on the first Passover. 
Uh, you remember they sacrificed the animals. They put the door on the blood, uh, the, the, the door on the blood. Well, I guess you could say it that way if you're creative. Uh, anyway, the blood on the doorpost and the angel of death would pass over. All of that having significant meaning to sinners, which we are. There are two types of sinners. Those sinners that are lost and those sinners that are saved. The saints and the ain'ts. And that's uh, what we should preach. Well, Jesus, again, the fulfillment of all the sacrifices and offerings in type. And everyone missed it. No one connected this. They loved him. They grieved over him. They followed him. They tried to understand what he was saying. And they did not understand that he is the sacrifice. That he is going to rise. There were, there were some shadows of hope, but really not much. And we get that from when the disciples were on the road to Emmaus, talking to Christ, not knowing it was the risen Lord. And they say, today is now the third day. We had hoped. But that hope was so far in the back because of the grief, the sorrow, the shock, the suddenness of everything that was going on around them. And these things are recorded for us to, so that when it is our turn to struggle in life, to struggle with, in faith, we look to the scriptures and we see how we are supposed to behave, what God is looking for from us. Hopefully, the scripture is real to us and hopefully Jesus is real to us. Uh, I think that most of you older Christians, Christ is very real to you. But how about you younger Christians? I mean, you've got so much happening in your life, so many distractions, so many things to do, so many things to not want to do. But there they are. Uh, you have to face them. But are you facing those things in life with or without Jesus? Is he real to you? When you pray to him, are you just mimicking something you've learned from your parents or watched other Christians do? Or are you genuinely in dialogue with God, the one who said in the beginning, let there be light. In verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went in to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Arimathea, that is a a Greek form of the Hebrew Rama. Rama is that Old Testament city where Samuel, the great prophet, was, was born. And here, Samuel's Old Testament town passes into the New Testament as Arimathea. And if I were a Jew living at this uh, time, knowing these things, I would have a warm heart over making this connection that this man that steps forward was from the same place that Samuel lived. Uh, that would mean something to me. Uh, going back to Jesus being real to you, being meaning something to you. I bet the devil is real to you when you're afraid, when something is coming against you. I bet you Satan is real to you. Well, then let Jesus be more real to you because he is superior, of course, to Satan. He is not the opposite of um, and may we never lose sight of that. It's so easy to have faith when everything is going right. It's when the trouble comes. Or, on the other side of that, things can go, be going too well. And who needs Christ then? 
these dangers we are aware of and we prepare for them. He says here that Joseph of Arimathea was a prominent council member. He was the top dog in the Sanhedrin, that governing body of religious leaders in Israel amongst the Jews. Uh, he is rich. We know that. We know that he is a secret disciple. And we know that he never sided against Christ. Luke tells us in the 23rd chapter of his gospel, he had not consented to their decision and deed. He wasn't one of them. He was on the council to serve God and to serve the people, but he was not against Jesus Christ. Now, when we talk about the Jews, uh, there are two types. There are the righteous Jews and there are unrighteous Jews, just like with Gentiles. There are righteous Gentiles, there are unrighteous Gentiles. So it is not uh, coming against the race of the Jewish people when we say, uh, just in, in speaking, for example, the Jews that had him crucified. Well, so did, the, so did the Romans, so did the Gentiles. Ultimately, who was responsible for the crucifixion of Christ was Christ himself. He is the author and finisher of our faith. And there'd be no faith worthwhile if we could not get to be with him for all eternity. And he is the one that made that so. Ergo, the rent, <clears throat> the tearing of the veil in the temple when he gave up his spirit. So here is Joseph, and he openly now breaks ranks with his colleagues. He is no longer a secret disciple. He will not be bullied by them anymore. He had hoped that Jesus was indeed the Jewish Messiah. But now, what's going through his head now? As he goes to speak with Pilate to ask for the body of Christ, what's he thinking? Is he settling in his head that, okay, this wasn't the Messiah, but he indeed was a prophet worthy of the highest honors? I think that's closer to what was going on in his head. It says here in verse 43, who was himself waiting for the kingdom. That's not a casual statement. Because of the status of a man like Joseph of Arimathea, most of the disciples probably never got to talk with him, be around him. It's just a social uh, gap between the two. And I'm sure when they wrote this, they were delighted that such a man could love the Lord. If he could do it, what was the excuse of the other ones? If, if other people your age can love Christ, then what's your excuse if you don't? Because I just want to play. I just, you know, I'm angry at something. I'm not getting my way in life. Whatever it may be. It's not a good enough reason to turn your back on Christ. Whatever reason these men had for turning their back on Jesus was not good enough for God. And they have, where are they now? Well, we know where Joseph of Arimathea is and Nicodemus. Where are the rest of them? A question mark that you don't want to go to your grave with on your life. Well, when Joseph went into the presence of Pilate, he contracted defilement. This was the place where the other Jews didn't want to go before the Passover feast. This made it impossible for him to take part in the feast as a righteous Jew would. That defilement deepened with contact, the dead body. Joseph had so now loved the Lord, ritual meant very little to him. However, 
now that he is defiled from celebrating the ceremony of the Passover. I don't think there could have been a greater celebration of the Passover that he and Nicodemus uh, engaged in in taking care of the body of the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. Uh, This was a, a greater honor than sitting at a table eating a lamb to take care of the lamb of God. And so they dared ceremonial defilement in order to take the Holy One of God and properly take care of what remained with tender hands, risking at the same time being alienated uh, from their colleagues. Uh, Their social status could have been lost. They could have incurred a, a great many problems for doing what they were doing. And so again, what did these men feel? Joseph and Nicodemus, as they attended to the body of Christ. It was a gruesome task. What was happening in their heads? They labored to lay Christ to rest in spite of the misery in their hearts, the hopelessness on their faces, the loss of excitement in the tone of their voices. They too were severely injured. Their money and their status did not protect them from how they were feeling at this moment. Of all possible disappointments, to be disappointed in Jesus Christ is the worst. And if you serve Christ enough, there will be those times where you are disappointed with what Christ has allowed or disallowed. You will struggle with this whole concept of the sovereignty of God. If God is sovereign, why doesn't he do more? Why doesn't he, why doesn't it goes on and on? Hope was dead in their hands for the time being. But they didn't know that. They didn't know that he was going to get up. Hope gone from their hearts. But love, love never budged because they're still so concerned about him. They're risking, they're risking ritual and status, and perhaps even more, just to get their hands on the lifeless body of Christ. That's love. There was nothing else to drive them. There was no other reason, nothing to push them forward. That should be ministry for us all. What motivates us to serve? Well, we want to do well. We don't want to let down our fellow servants. That's part of it. But the greater part is the love of Christ. And if it's not, it needs to be. Maybe you say, maybe you're, you know, you say, but I don't feel it like I used to feel it. Then you're, and you're still doing it? Yes. Why? Because I love the Lord. But but I don't feel it. That's war. And that's good war. That's, That's how we beat back the devil. We don't wait to feel good about it. We go by faith. The just shall live by faith. It does not say the just shall live by feelings. And what would get done then? Well, there are things in life that can bring profound misery and disappointment with God's way. And we accept that. And if we love him, we won't budge. We won't move. Those who become apostates have run out of love. There is this love 
that stands and takes what life throws our way because of Christ. Now, people who don't have Christ can take what life throws at them too. But it only carries them through one lifetime. And it dies after, It dies when they die. You see, the world, you know, they're accomplishing a great many things. Been building things and developing things and discovering things. And yet, it re- what does it really matter? I mean, if you walked up to Abraham, you said, do you know they actually went to the moon and landed and walked on the moon? Well, Abraham, he had a conspiracy theory. No, he didn't. No. But what did it matter? I mean, did, did, did they get up there? Okay, so you go to the front of the line and going into heaven. What does it profit a man if he gains the world? It's not about that. I mean, there have to be things on earth to keep us busy, else we get into trouble. But when it comes down to it, it comes down to, do you love the Lord? It says here in uh, verse 43, coming and taking courage. How much thought went into his taking courage, knowing the consequences? There would be evidently a need... To be courageous at this point. Otherwise, we would not have read these words. They would not have been necessary to write. Mark and the other writers of the Gospels, when they put this in there, they were saying this man was in danger. It took courage to do what he did. John's Gospel, chapter 19, verse 38. Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Now, again, using that, quoting that scripture, he's talking about the Jewish leaders. It's not an ethnic slur at all. Knowingly putting himself in harm's way for the body of Christ, for a dead body. John, in his letter, maybe he was thinking of Joseph when he said, There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. You see the connection between what this man is doing and love? It was not his duty as a council member of the Sanhedrin. There was no sense of, well, it's a decent thing to do. Otherwise, he would have asked for the bodies of the two other outlaws, too. Well, the two outlaws, not other outlaws. Christ was no outlaw. His sole purpose, his sole focus was Christ and his love for Jesus. And though he may have been a secret disciple prior to the crucifixion, watching how Jesus handled it all and how he was, how Christ was handled by his enemies, just made this man love him more. The Roman mind had a different view. A king should not be treated this way, because that's a carnal view. And Joseph knew, he knew better by what he heard preached, because he knew enough of the scripture to make at least sound Uh, conclusions concerning the righteousness of Jesus. It's just the whole Messiah thing escaped them. Who else amongst the disciples would be granted an audience with Pilate? I mean, John may have wanted to meet with Pilate to ask for the body, but Pilate would never meet with a man like John. He 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 did not have the social uh, clout to merit an audience. Uh, But here is... Nick, uh, Joseph, he has it. He can get a meeting with the governor, and he does get it. He went into Pilate and asked for the body of Christ. Whatever shame 
they had in mind to handle the body of Christ with before Joseph showed up was blocked by the Father. God would not allow it. So God provides this servant, Joseph. It is a divine appointment. And we read this and we're supposed to say, there comes a time when God needs a specific individual. Will there come a time when he needs me? Will there come a time when he wants me to do something and I am handpicked for the task? Will I notice it? Will I act on it? Or maybe I'll live my life in such a way God can't ever ask me. Maybe my Christianity is too shallow. Maybe I don't have enough desire for Jesus Christ. These are questions that we're supposed to face. What are we supposed to do? Run from them? And then blame God for not using us? We who love the Lord, we want God to use us. And when God uses us, many times there's a lot of waiting involved. And those who can't wait for the Lord often wither instead of continuing to wait and stay awake on their watch. So God <clears throat> provides this servant, Joseph. This uh, incidentally would allow for the body of evidence at the resurrection. All the Christ haters had to do to refute the resurrection was produce the body of Christ. If someone had said one of the outlaws that was crucified next to Christ had risen from the dead, they would have just exhumed his body and said, no, here he is. But they couldn't do that with Christ. They wouldn't need to do it with the others because there was no such claim attached to them. This is a stroke of God's hand saying, I'm going to preserve the body. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to put it where I want it. And God totally in control. Uh, to this day, the Christ haters, and they're not our enemies. They are those that we should have a passion for in saving their souls. But they're Christ haters, many of them nonetheless. They have been able to rid the world of the body of Christ in the church church is the body of Christ. Colossians, Paul wrote in the first chapter, he said, for the sake of his body, which is the church. Paul says, I'm suffering these things for the sake of his body, which is the church. He certainly knew of Luke's gospel. He would have known about Joseph of Arimathea. He would have known that Joseph put himself in harm's way. Because of love? Even if he didn't know it, he had enough other things to arrive to this understanding for the sake of his body, which is the church. The church is very problematic. There are some beautiful things about the church and there are some problems always with the church because of the people who attend. And so we're supposed to be ready for this. And our response to whatever comes our way is supposed to be love and prayer and endurance and perseverance. Not only are we supposed to take the pain, we're supposed to look to keep advancing, moving forward. A difference between endurance and perseverance. You endure, you take the hit. It hurts. It's not a lot of fun when it's your feelings. Perseverance means you're still moving forward. You're still taking territory. Verse 44, Mark writes, Pilate marveled that he was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. 
crucifixion was intended to be long and painful. Of course, there was not, uh, there were to be no survivors. It was not, well, we'll just torture you with this, and then if you last enough days, we'll bring you down. No, the, it was a long and painful death. That's what it was designed to do. You can look up in history. Of course, the Internet makes this easy. Years ago, you had to buy Encyclopedia Britannica or something to get these answers. Now it's right there at your fingertips, as Daniel promised. In the end, day, in the end times, knowledge will increase, and that was an understatement in many ways, it seems, but... Uh, you can look up how the Persians just uh, worked on ways to torture people when they didn't like them. Uh, some pretty mean... Uh, so this, uh, compared to some of the Persian methods, this was relatively... Uh, what's the word I want? Whatever it is, it's not so bad. There you go. Anyway, of course, the hands and feet would be nailed to the tree, to the to the wood. And uh, this would allow for the individual uh, with his arm stretched out, his rib cage, of course, stretched out like that. It was difficult to breathe. Well, he could push up on his leg still and, and catch a breath every now and then. And the reason why I'm pointing this out is because Pilate is inquiring about him. The Jews had asked for the bodies to be taken off. And to do this, they're going to break the legs. Well, when they break the legs, you can't hoist yourself up anymore to take those breaths and that uh, hastens death. John's Gospel, chapter 19. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. Now, I, I left that last part in there that seems to be separate from the account of how they handled the body of Christ, the Romans, after he died to verify that he was dead. Well, there we read that they went to break the legs of the other outlaws, which would speed up their death so they could take them off the cross. But John... In telling this, he says, and he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows what he, uh, that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. He says, I was there, I'm telling you the truth, and I'm telling you this because I want you to believe. I'm not making this stuff up. There's no benefit to making this stuff up. I'm not going to stand before God making up things about God. I'm telling you the truth. And so when Pilate says, is he dead already? The centurion verifies, goes to verify. what They don't take Joseph's word. They go to see. And they could not break his legs because it was against the scripture. He, being the Passover lamb, the lamb of God, not a bone was to be broken. Exodus 12 verse 46, when God said you take the Passover lamb and you, you sacrifice it and you put the blood on the the threshold of the, of the house, but you don't break any of the bones. And the, he is fulfilling that type. It is important to understand you cannot receive moral lessons from the Bible and at the same time charge its writers with dishonesty. How can you say, you know, we need to listen to these men when they talk about not stealing and not killing and not lying, but they're making up the gospel story. 
that's a contradiction that, uh, that is, uh, defies reason, and uh, we should point that out. Any chance we get to the naysayers. These were godly men, and what they wrote was godly and righteous, and it would be foolish to weigh your eternity on such a petty complaint as, yeah, but they were making it up when you have no proof. Verse 45, so when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. So he called for the investigation. He receives the verification. <clears throat> At this point, the world is beginning to, to, Pilate representing the world, is beginning to think that they're done with Christ. You can have the dead body of Christ, they would scoff. And there stands Joseph, our hero, heart bursting with love, love lost, but love found at the same time. He lost in his head, he lost Christ to death. But he has this newfound love for him now. Otherwise, again, he would not be there doing what he's doing. I think maybe you're serving in the kids' ministry. Maybe you're serving uh, somewhere in, uh, in the ushers' ministry. And you just don't, again, I'm coming back to this because it plagues us. And you just don't have the feeling anymore. But you're serving anyway. How important it is. Because we're seeing this take place here in this man. It is a typhoon of heartache that he is enduring because of love. Why didn't he say, you know, I thought he was the Messiah. He got himself killed. He's not the Messiah. He said he was. He lied to me. I'm done. It's not what he does. Thomas comes close to that, but he doesn't either. Thomas doesn't know what to do. He just, I, I just, I, I don't, he just completely, Angel just fell apart. And I'm not going to believe because I'm not going through that again. I believed Christ was the Messiah, said Thomas. And it turns out he wasn't. Now I don't know what to do. And I'm not going to believe he's risen because, I, again, I'm not going through that. And, of course, the Lord fixed that, did he not? It was a defective faith, but who has perfect faith amongst us? Well, still remaining before them is, again, the gruesome task to remove the body from the cross. A gruesome task, but a beautiful deed. And we don't need to go into how difficult that must have been. It wasn't just a matter of untying some ropes. Only hands of love now touch the body of Christ. Shouldn't that be the way it is with the church? If the church is the body of Christ, shouldn't it be cared for by loving hands? I, I, think, I think we all believe that. Because if I have not love, what do I have? What am I left with? If this love is to cast out fear, this perfect love, then it must be something I want. If this love covers a multitude of sins, which I have, that's what I want. Speaking about this multitude of sins, a lesson for all you parents raising your children. Teach them that it is easier to take a plank out of somebody's eye than it is to take a moat out of your own eye. A plank's just there, you just grab it. But a moat is a little more tricky. And a plank may leave some moats. Anyway, teach your children... That obedience involves more judgment of myself, examination of myself, than putting somebody else under a microscope and examining them. That's Phariseeism. We don't want that. We don't want our children or our adults 
going around, sticking people under a microscope, evaluating their service to the Lord. Now, that does not mean that blatant sin is to be ignored or trivialized. That's different. I mean, if you come to a church, the pastor doesn't come up to you and say, hey, how are you doing? What sins are you wrestling with? I mean, we're not looking for trouble. But if you come to church and, you know, you still got the bag of money that says, you know, First National Bank on it, uh, of course, then, you know, that's rather blatant, is it not? If you tell us, listen, pastor, this is what I'm doing, and what you're telling us is a sin, we're not going to say, oh, don't worry about it. Then we've got to deal with it. But we're not looking. That's a difference. There's a big difference between uh, the plank in someone's eye and the moat uh, as I am uh, saying it to you. And I think this is a lesson we all need to remember. I have enough things about me that I'm trying to fix and to waste time trying to point it out to others what they're doing wrong. Not that it works very much anyway. You point it out, you usually make an enemy. Anyway, um, uh, just a side note, has nothing to do with this morning directly, but everything in Scripture has everything to do with other parts of Scripture. So, verse 46, Then he bought fine linen, took him down, wrapped him in the linen, and he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. It's so hard to preach on this subject. Again, to preach to Christians who know the story as well as I do and to keep you into it. When I first started pastor and I tried to teach the arcane uh, sections of scriptures, you know, the, the minor prophets, you know, to tell people about Zephaniah and, and Haggai because it was fresh ground. And, and oh, I didn't know that. And you'd keep their attention. But uh, the, the whole story, the gospel story, the Christians, you know, they're very familiar with. And just think, April's coming. And I'll be up here again uh, trying to teach you something from... And, and, but God has been good to me, and I've got some surprises for you. I'll just start making up stuff. <laughs> so, it's like, well, I didn't know that was in the Bible. You go home and find it. I can't find it. Pastor, where is it, please? I'm too busy. Uh, anyway. <laughs> Anyhow, back to verse 46, where uh, the, he brings the fine linen. And they take him down, and they wrap him in linen. Here are these two rich men. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. They are two rich men who made it through the eye of the needle. Again, if these two rich men can make it, what's everybody else's excuse who is rich? You don't have one. John chapter 19, verse 39. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, because he was afraid also. Also, probably the crowds were thinner, but anyhow. Also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. So Nicodemus finds out, or at some point, uh, these two communicate, and Nicodemus shows up, and he, you know, the Jews did not embalm the bodies. They wrapped them in perfumed burial cloths, and, and that's what we're, uh, these men are doing now. It really is a waste of, of these resources, because he's going to be out in three days. Nicodemus also objected to the unrighteous treatment of the Lord, uh, John's Gospel, chapter 7, Nicodemus, he who had came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? So here, there we see Nicodemus upholding the scripture in the presence of those who claimed to be custodians of God's word, but had no interest in carrying it out. Have you ever met a Christian like that, that knows the Bible? 
They could gnaw like the back of their hand, whatever that means. And uh, uh, still, they have no intention of following it. They give you convenient Christianity. When it's convenient for them to point out your problems, when it's convenient for them to make themselves look good, oh yeah, they'll use the Bible. But when someone points out some egregious or some just blatant sin, uh, it doesn't all of a sudden count. And uh, they are out there, unfortunately. And he laid him in a tomb which, he had, uh, which had been hewn out of the rock. Here's another emblem of his incorruption. Well, there was the virgin birth, of course. It just, you know, how he came into creation. How he manifested himself. Then there was his entry into Jerusalem. Luke says, a cult on which no one ever sat. And now here we have a tomb. John's Gospel, chapter 19, gives us a little bit more information. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And so there is, uh, again, these emblems of his uh, incorruptibility. It says here in verse 46, And rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. This is uh, far from over. The rolling of that stone is not saying the story, uh, the end, and the credits start coming up on the screen. The rolling of this stone across the tomb is God still saying, for those who believe, this ain't over. That rolling stone rolls both ways. And may we never forget it. When we face whatever it is we're facing in life, God still controls the roll of the stone. It is still, so you go to Israel today, you look at what looks like to be Golgotha, the place of the skull where Christ was crucified. It fits the requirements from Scripture to the north of the city, outside of the city, the place of the skull, next to a garden. What is next to uh, Golgotha today? Well, there's this garden that the archaeologists have unearthed. It, was, uh, it also has a wine press in it, which would account for some of the wealth of Joseph of Arimathea. But there's also, hewn out of the, uh, the hill there, a tomb. And you can go in this tomb today. It all lines up. But the stone is not there. It's gone. Nobody knows what happened. There is one in Jordan up on a mountain that fits the dimensions. No one knows why it's up there. There's no tomb up there that anybody has found. It's just one of those things that make you go, hmm. I mean, I mean did, did the Lord send an angel? So use that for a Frisbee. You just can't read into it like that. But you can enjoy it. You can be amused by it. You can say, well, maybe. I mean, those angels are pretty strong people. Any, well, well, they're not people like us. <laughs> but they're persons, right? I, I, I wonder. I, I wonder where the conversation is going to be like with an angel. What's your favorite color? <laughs> Blue. No, 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 no. <laughs> anyway. Uh, <laughs> Only those who love Jesus cared for his body. True then, true now. The body of Christ. Only those who love Jesus care for the body. And when does that supposed to start? So, the Gospels, they par- well, 
the New Testament parallels the Christian walk in its outline. For example, in the Gospels, we meet Jesus Christ. We fall in love with him there. And then we want to serve him. And the book of Acts comes right after the Gospels. is serving the Lord. But then we discover that there's resistance from within and from without. From my own heart and from outside of me, too. There are people who get in the way. And then I need correction. Well, that's what the epistles are for. All of the epistles are correcting Christian behavior. None of them are Hallmark cards. Hi, enjoy the season. They all deal with, you know, you've got a problem as a Christian, and this is how you, it has to be handled. And then, of course, by the time we're done with this, we just want to go to heaven, and there's the book of Revelation. <laughs> so when we're done with Mark, we're going to, to the book of Acts. I haven't taught from the Acts in uh, Sunday morning since 2008. And so we will see the, the serving of the Lord in the book of Acts, and then we'll come to the Romans. And, and, and this is not easy to teach from the epistles, because you have Christians coming from other churches with other doctrines, and the epistles are going to deal with those things. And many times Christians coming from other churches and other doctrines have not dealt with it. And so when you start saying, no, you don't have the right to speak in tongues any old place you want to. There are laws governing this. You have no right to use tongues to shut up the teaching of God's word because you just have this impulse during service. <laughs> so it's difficult to teach this because you don't want to, you're not trying to crush anybody, but you're trying to stay with the truth. And the truth does hurt sometimes. Well, that's what's coming for us as a body. And that's just, a, uh, just uh, a, a, another pastor Marshall in the middle of... <laughs> what I was uh, talking about. So the stone is rolled away, and it's out of the way to this day. The Sanhedrin, they charged Christ with blasphemy, making it a crime for him to be who he was. The Romans charged him with treason, making it a crime for him to say who he was. That's how the godless think. Isaiah 53, verse 9, And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. You think one of the Sanhedrin members, other than Joseph and Nicodemus, you think more of them would have said, hey, wait, there are too many things about the life of Christ that are lining up with his life and no one else's life. And we try these tactics today when we talk about evolution and how goofy. Do you know if... if, if if the evolutionists were not so much against Jesus Christ, they too would call evolution stupid. But they can't. Because that to them means they have to then say, well, then maybe there is a creator. It's the dumbest thing. I mean, I, I, like my pastor used to say, when a fly, a fly goes up uh, to the ceiling and at the last second flips and lands on the ceiling on his feet. Well, according to evolution, he would have kept banging his head into the ceiling until he figured out how to do this. In fact, all the flies would have died until they could have developed this system of survival, which is evolution. Now, that's simplifying it, and I'm, I'm just really not happy with the oohs and ahs. I'm not getting enough of them. It should be, yeah, that's right. But uh, anyway, let's get, let's get done with this. So, uh, in, because of time in that sense, because I could go on and on and on. So the religious elite, delighted to be rid of, of the one that went around doing good. Mark um, chapter 7, he wrote this, Jesus speaking, It is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts is far from me. 
Okay, I, I, I honor God. I love you, Lord. But then I mess up. But my heart does not. Love doesn't budge. Maybe I sin and do the wrong thing, but my heart does not change. I get in the car, in, in my truck and, and, and want to just, you know, other people to just stay off the, off the road until I'm past them. You know you get in the flesh. But that doesn't mean I don't love the Lord. Verse 47, And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joses observed where he was laid. Again, it's unlikely that these women knew Joseph of Arimathea personally. They were unfamiliar with the location of the tomb, so they have to follow to find out where it is. Uh, In chapter 16 of Mark, uh, we'll read, And they said amongst themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And so here's where, where it's going to go. They're, going, they're following, looking where he is laid, but when they come back days later, this was a concern they had, and of course it will be dealt with. My point is, in reading from Mark 16, that if we are to remain useful to the Lord, uh, it, it's not by being gloomy guys, walking around depressed and sorry about everything. In our lives, it is uh, these people were grieved, their hearts were broken, but love carried them through. And if you are downtrodden and you've been defeated in life and things have have, have gone wrong, uh, but you still love the Lord, let that part of you be visible. Let the love for Jesus Christ shine from you, rather than the you know the the hardships, because one you're planting rocks. They're not going to grow. They're not going to produce life. But love, love does something. And Jesus knew they were going to be sorrowful. He says this in John 16, Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, and you will be sorrowful, but your joy will be turned, your sorrow, pardon me, will be turned into joy. I'd rather go complain to God than complain to you. I'd rather take the things that bum me out and tell it to God than to walk around with it on my face showing you. I don't think there's any fruit that comes from being sad all the time in front of other people. I'm not saying that uh, we need to fake it. I'm saying we need to fight it. And there's a huge difference between the two. Courage stumbled in the lives of these men and women at this point in in the story. But throughout it, throughout the whole story, with with their courage and their faith struggling, love never moved. They never stopped loving him. Jesus knows who loves him. And he appeared to those who loved him then, and he does now. And may God teach us to love because we need it. You younger Christians, again, that are still in the home, you know how to be loved. You enjoy when you're loved. But what comes out of you? Is there any love coming out of you? Or is it just one way with you? Are you just like a drain? It just sucks in the love and that's the end of the story? 
Well, you generate. Does anything, uh, you know, the, the, again, look at your maps. You look at the Sea of Galilee, and you see that water flows into it, and water flows out from it. And within that Sea of Galilee, there is life. Along the banks of the Galilee, there is life. You go to northern Israel, it's all green, and it's lush, and there's life. You go south to the Dead Sea, it's larger than the Sea of Galilee. But there's no life around it. There's no life in it. It's a desert. I don't want to be the Dead Sea. I want to be like the Sea of Galilee. Well, to do that, I've got to know my Lord is risen. I've got to know He loves me. And I've got to know I love Him back. And to do that, I have to believe. I have to have faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. These are things that God wants to help us with. He's not saying you need to do this in your own strength. He's saying, I want to help you with this. I want you to love me because I surely love you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, we know the story. We know the life. We who believe have made our choice. And our choice is to follow you. No matter what, not only do we want to follow you, we want to be useful to you. We want to be used by you. We want others to benefit from the faith that you have invested in us. We want to be Christ-like. All of these things require work and hard work and more work, but it is worth it. You have taught us these things through your word You have clarified them through your spirit. And we thank you. If you're listening and you have not opened your heart to Christ, you've not entered into this friendship and this love, but yet you know God is calling you. He's inviting you. He is asking you to come to him. That your sins can be dealt with because God is holy. He is pure. And sin has to be dealt with by him. But we're not strong enough to deal with it ourselves. We have to go through Jesus Christ. The way and the truth and the life. The eternal life. If you are ready to open your heart to Christ. To give your heart to him. To love him. To receive from him. To be useful to him. If you're ready to take this step. Then you just need to say it. You make this prayer with me. As an example. God receives you. If you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I confess my sin. There's no hiding it. There's no avoiding it. There's no way I can come to you and pretend my sin does not exist and expect you to accept me, so I confess it. And I ask you to forgive me. There's no one else who can forgive me. There's no one else good enough There's no one else who's died for me in my place, taken my judgment. And I ask you that from this day forward, you would be not only the one that saves my soul, but who rules over my life, that you would be my Lord and my Savior, and I give my life to you. And now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer this morning, may they not be ashamed of it. May they not back down from it. We commit these things into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen.